Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome, everybody. Uh, on today's episode, we have with us Thomas Cohen, and we are here to discuss his wonderful book, Subaltern Frontiers, Agrarian Citymaking in Gurgaon. Thank you, Tom, very much for taking our time to speak with us about your uh, very thoroughly, deeply researched book that's so analytically sophisticated and such a joy to read. And we are very excited to hear more from you about how this book was conceptualized and the story that it tells um, so welcome and thanks for taking your time. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to to talk to, the, to you about the book today. So thank you. Um, as is tradition at NBN, uh, I'd like to start by asking about your journey as an ethnographer and how you came to the discipline of geography and the method of ethnography. Um, so just to get a sense of your um, your own sort of intellectual genealogy. Yeah, so um, I actually started out as a like a political scientist. I studied political science at the University of Manchester. Um, and at the time, I was very um, politically involved. I was being sort of politicised by, um, you know, it was a time of the financial crisis. There's an, a kind of uptick in, in inequality, in, um, you know, in housing inequality in particular. And... Um, as part of that undergraduate course, I began to take courses in, in urban geography. And I found that geography provided me with this vocabulary and and a, and a set of um, framings, really, to understand the kind of world around me and what was happening, um, some of these transformations, particularly in cities, um, um, at kind of in the sort of late 2000s, early 2010s. Um, I then, you know, I then I kind of became an urban geographer and I did an urban geography postgraduate course right at the time of the kind of uprisings um, across the, you know, North Africa and, and, and West Asia. Um, it was a time of Occupy and um, some of the kind of student protests and the uprisings here in the UK. Um, and again, you know, it was it was geography and geographers who were really speaking to that political moment. Um, and, you know, and I, at the time, started to read, you know, Henri Lefebvre and David Harvey and Ruth Gilmore. Um, and, you know, I was quite inspired by the ability of these academics to engage in a grounded and political way in some of these social and spatial struggles, but also be able to speak to the kind of internationalism and globality so of, of these of these processes so that kind of geography gives us both a vocabulary of um a kind of grounded vocabulary of, of social spatial change but also one that can speak to scale and i think that, that's something that that sort of attracted to me me to it from a kind of political standpoint and then later an academic one um and then in, in terms of ethnography and doing ethnography i think my um kind of geographical perspective has always been um 
drawn from those in geography that conduct um, urban ethnographies, largely feminist geographers, post-colonial geographers, who whose work troubles um, the kind of universalizing narratives that, we, which, that tend to take up a lot of space within geography. Um, so, and then, so that's partly what drew me in kind of broadly to ethnography later when I was doing my, my PhD and my um, post-doctorate post post, um, study. Ethnography was a method that allowed me to to see into and understand a set of processes that's, that perhaps weren't easily um, understandable from through other kinds of methods and didn't provide, and you know, ethnography provides that a kind of certain degree of richness um, and um, um, a kind of wealth of information that allowed me to p- tell a story about property, um, tell a story about labour migration, uh, that that I was interested in telling uh, in my work. Um, thank you. Um, I would also be very keen to hear how what is what, what is the story of this book coming together? How the project was first conceptualized? Um, is this what you initially started? You know, was this what you wanted to do from the very beginning, or is it a project that evolved uh, through your doctoral research and uh, you know field fields? possibilities and serendipity so I'm curious about how this book came to be yeah so I kind of came to the city of Gorgown which for those people that don't know is is a kind of city um about 20 kilometers southwest of New Delhi um that in the 2000s was very notorious as a kind of prototype neoliberal or privatized um urban development model um and So around the same time, really, around 2010, when I was doing my postgraduate study, there were these really huge industrial strikes uh, and factory occupations at the Maruti Suzuki car plant in Gorgown that had quite significant kind of international resonance. So I was actually in London and at at the beginning um, of these these strikes in 2011, 2010-11, and you know, friends of mine and people I knew were translating the the literature and the pamphlets and the diaries from these factory occupations in from Hindi into English. And there's a huge amount of um, political and kind of intellectual intrigue as to you know what was going on in the corner of Gorgown. What how how is it that these you know thousands of workers have taken over their factory for weeks on end? And partly because this form of uh, labour organising was supposed to have been um, long gone, a kind of figure of the past, particularly in the minds of um, kind of those in in North America and and, and Western Europe. Um, so I so that's kind of my first encounter uh, with Gauguin was as this kind of site of radical labour politics and industrial action. I then was fortunate to, enough to do a kind of some work for an organisation in, in Delhi in 2011. Um, so I spent some time in Delhi and I was introduced to this other iteration um, of, of Gorgown. And this was the Gorgown, which, you know, which I just kind of pre- briefly introduced. Um, this model of privatised neoliberal urban development that was transformed from a, an agricultural town in the 80s to this 
bustling metropolis of 2 million people by 2010 um, and was composed um, of a series of, you know, privatized, gated enclaves, governed, developed and governed by private real estate actors. And in many ways, this this iteration of Gauguin fits in with both a kind of post-liberalization moment where um, there were economists and policymakers and scholars really championing the successes of of uh, market liberalization in, in India, but also critical urban scholars who who saw Gauguin as a kind of another example, another iteration of the capture by global capital of um, rural space around the world. And so that was my, those were my two entry points into Gauguin. And in a way, if you read the introduction of the book, my own personal um, ex- kind of introduction to the city shape how I frame um, the structure of the introduction. I was, I, when I was doing postgraduate study, I was interested in new cities, in how, uh, in these kind of paradigms of capitalist urbanization. Uh, but at the same time, when I went to visit Gauguin, I saw all these f- kinds of um, processes and politics which were which were slightly um, different. There were there were these other geographies which weren't told um, in the kind of mainstream uh, readings of this miraculous urbanization project. One of which was the presence of these large scale um, industrial strikes. Um, and you know, part of my initial interest in the city was, well, how is it that we have on one hand this totem for um, kind of high neoliberal urbanization sitting, you know, um, shoulder to shoulder with um, sort of large scale um, automobile and, and garment export manufacturing. Uh, what are the kind of political, social, cultural processes that allow for those two kind of um, factors and modes of production to take place together. But there are also other things, you know, when you go to Gauguin, you're like, wait, this is this is different, right? You have a city that has, you know, the most, at the time, the largest, um, uh, the largest special economic, economic zone um, in India, the largest uh, private township in, the, in Asia in the 2000s, the highest value real estate in the country, um, paired with um, over a hundred villages that scatter the interior of the city. Um, you have this mixture in Gauguin of um, agrarian property regimes and private property. You have uh, on the edges of Gauguin farmers who are kind of repurposing themselves as developers and leading, if you like, the frontier of, of um, real estate development. So it, I was interested and I was drawn into this quite uncanny form of urban, of global urbanization, which on one hand conformed to many of the things that we are told about uh, kind of global capitalist urbanization, but looked and felt quite different. And I was kind of pulled into the politics um, of that. Yeah, thank you. And you're so right. I feel like just the first like three, four sentences of the book, they set, I mean, you set this kind of the direction from which you're traveling to Gurgaon. It sets this kind of 
this almost this political vector that we're not driving from Delhi to Gurgaon and on the big highways, but we are coming from the interiors uh, to its kind of, you know, uh, to its glitzy center. And just that itself, I think, had me hooked. Um, so maybe we can invite you to tell us the story of the book itself um, and what the book um, um, argues, what conversation it joins and the story of Gurgaon and agrarian city making um, that it tells. Yeah, so so the main argument of, of the book is that Gurgaon's urbanisation um, and perhaps um, quite, a, quite a lot of urbanisation, I would argue, in, in, in North India at least, is driven and shaped by um, agrarian landowners, agrarian institutions, and property regimes. So while um, a lot of attention had been paid within the literature to these kind of um, processes of urbanization, which were driven by dispossession of uh, the rural, uh, the kind of rural peasantry and the implantation of kind of capitalist labor and land markets. What I explore in this book is the ways in which um, the state and real estate capital build um, alliances and compromises with the agrarian world in order to access and transform rural land into real estate and also to manage and discipline migrant labour markets. So under this process of what I call agrarian city making, landowners are called upon by, by the state and by real estate developers to view themselves not as peasants, not as farmers or Kassan, Kassanis, but rather as brokers, as speculators, as landlords. Um, and they're called upon to speculate on, on their rural land, to repurpose agrarian property relations and um, manage the, the labour markets that kind of underpin the city's economy. Um, and so there's this kind of process of encounter which shapes uh, Gauguin's urbanization between the agrarian world and um, kind of urban real estate and industrial forces. And this hel- helps explain so much, I argue, of the kind of spatial landscape of accumulation that we see in Gauguin. So while in order to capture so much, over 40,000 acres of rural land was transformed into urban property over the course of the first 30 years of Gauguin's urbanization. And in order to do that without state intervention, the first half of the book argues that the state and real estate firms have brokered a series of territorial alliances um, with agrarian landowners that have ceded certain territories and rents to agrarian landowners in exchange for market access to their agricultural land. So you, what you you end up with in Gauguin, and anyone that's been to Gauguin will know, is this sort of patchwork landscape of villages and um, urban real estate that kind of dominate the interior um, of the city. Um, these ceded territories, what are popularly referred to as urban villages, um, subsidise labour costs because it's within these urban villages that labour tenements are are built by by landlords. They also kind of mediate tensions within the landowning communities against um, otherwise quite violent forms of dispossession because they've not been fully dispossessed. They can hold on to their uh, village homesteads within within the urban village boundaries. And they also allow and pull in 
landowners into a broader economy of, of uh, real estate development and speculation. So I trace in chapter two of the book the ways that um, agrarian landowners mobilize their urban village rents and, and, and recycle them into investments in real estate and land speculation in the broader city. So there's this kind of um, relationship that the village, uh, functional relationship that the village plays to the surrounding city. Um, the other kind of instantiation of these territorial partnerships is in the way that the, the state calls upon landowners and indeed the, the agrarian bureaucracy to convert what are quite complex um, agrarian property regimes, which are often, you know, com- composed of a, quite, a mixture of quite complex um, customary rights and uses and exclusions into something which is kind of globally fungible and standardised as a real estate asset. And so two chapters of the book focus on the ways that agrarian institutions and so the bureaucracy of the revenue department to be specific, uh, which are charged with the mapping and transfer of rural land and um, agrarian landowners are involved as as kind of point men in the transformation um, and conversion of, of agrarian land. Um, and crucially, I, I should say that the way I think about these encounters between kind of the kind of urban and agrarian worlds is um, is, is, is in a way not entirely determined by urban um, real estate and capitalist forces, um, nor are they sort of necessarily monodirectional. So, in other words, the process of compromise and alliance that um, the the state and real estate act, real estate capital makes with the agrarian world, seed territory, seed power to these agrarian actors, and that power allows for the disruption, contortion, appropriation of other of these of uh, real estate and infrastructure development projects, um, and that's where I kind of draw on Subaltan, the Subaltan literature. So this is why I mean this analytic, which foregrounds compromise alliance helps me to explain this kind of awkward articulated landscape that you find on in what we might start to think about as agrarian cities where urban real estate is paired with customary agrarian land rentier extraction is paired with industrial commodity production um agrarian kind of bureaucratic institutions are at the heart of global real estate development projects right so that's the kind of um um, story that I wanted to draw out from um, in the book. Yeah, thank you. Um, and on this sort of like this, this, this what you call this patchwork landscape, uh, throughout the book, we encounter a whole host of characters. We meet brokers, we meet village elders, we meet industrial workers, uh, middlemen, politicians and developers. Um, and I was just uh, curious to hear more about what your fieldwork looked like and how you navigated relations and these very disparate spaces, um, um, your access, your relations, um, the kinds of encounters and the kind of sort of life sharing um, that made your fieldwork. Um, yeah, I'd be curious to hear about that. Yes, yeah. So um, my this project actually started out as a PhD project, which itself started out as a project to study labour tenements. So I was interested in these strikes that were going on and um, the role that the kind of space of social reproduction played, uh, these kind of 
tenement spaces which are built, as I said, in these ceded urban village territories um, where former kind of agrarian landowners were had sort of repurposed themselves as landlords and were, were charged uh, with managing um, the kind of everyday lives of migrant industrial labourers in lieu of actual any public housing or public space in a city like Gorgans. It's quite a different space to, you know, the traditional Indian city. Um, and so to conduct that research on the kind of, on kind of tenement life in Gorgown, I, I engaged in um, kind of ethnographic research of the tenements. So I lived in a tenement room um, for a period of time and I kind of, and placed myself in local trade union organisations that were um, active within the tenements. Um, and that relationship that I had with the trade unions, and these are kind of small, uh, non-affiliated uh, trade unions, so part of a new wave of independent trade unions, but have some, kind, some, some sort of um, aspects of their work is slightly NGO-like. Um, but focused on issues of employment rights, um, citizenship rights, housing rights, and so on. That 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 relationship with the unions spanned, you know, from 2012, 2013 to 2019, when the last piece of fieldwork was done um, for this book. And so it was a very long um, gestating relationship that I had to build, um, not just with the trade unions, but w- also with my neighbours in the tenements, um, with landlords in the tenements. But it was through that ethnographic research with workers on their living and working conditions and how and their kind of mobilities through the tenements that I began to spend actually a lot of time with with tenement landlords because such as the kind of rhythms of tenement life in Gulgaon, most people will go to work at 8am. The, the kind of night shift, my neighbours who were on the night shift would be coming back and going to sleep. And so the middle of the day is actually quite quiet in these labour tenements. So I'd end up sitting and sort of playing cards or um, chatting with all these landlords. And that's kind of, that took me into a another world, really, um, which was more concerned with, you know, how is it that, these landlords are, are using their rents to engage uh, and become active participants in the land market, in the real estate market, which is a real kind of, t- takes up really the first half of the book is how um, real estate development is subtended by um, these agrarian um, actors and institutions. Um, so, so then I kind of, I think in chapter two of the book, I engaged I, I draw from a, a quite a large household survey of landowners that I, had, I basically had met across a number of years in Gulgaon to get a sense of where they were, you know, how much money they had received from selling their fields to developers, how, how they'd used that money, um, uh, how many kind of um, tenements they had. They, you know, a lot of, of these landlords will have used the money for sort of con- consumptive purposes too. Um, and that kind of builds the kind of first, well, chapter two and three of the book. Um, this kind of mixture of ethnography with some interview and and household survey. I then kind of around actually sort of at the end of my PhD realized that the state, while the kind of story of Gulgaon is one of state 
sort of deregulation and, and um, the state the state stepping aside to allow private actors to kind of manage and build urban space, the state still played a pretty essential role in um, encouraging and eliciting um, kind of private entrepreneurial action from both real estate developers and, and the agrarian landowners. So I, I became more interested in the role that the state and the sort of state bureaucratic pro- processes play in shaping property markets um, in, in and the kind of the place that that held within Gauguin's story. Um, so I then undertook this kind of long form of ethnography within the revenue department um, of uh, the state of Haryana, which is the state that Gauguin's in, um, uh, that, that kind of bureaucratic office. Um, I did that partly because the issue of, unlike the issue of labour, where uh, which is quite sort of straightforward to study in a way, you kind of can spend time with workers, you could, I didn't do this, but you could go and be a worker in a, in a factory, some people do this, you can go speak to management, trade unions. The question of property and real estate and land is sort of slightly more opaque. People keep their cards understandably and probably rightfully to the close to their chest on that one um and so in order to really get a good sense of the kind of practical uh, workings of the conversion of rural land into property i felt like ethnography and ethnography of this the state bureaucracy was probably the you know the most useful method to try and get those kind of rich accounts of of property, kind of the social life of property, if you like. Um, so I undertook like a, I guess, a year-long F participant observation of the of Potwaga, which is the lowest um, office within the revenue department. These are kind of an open courtyard office in the middle of Gogaon, which is responsible for um, <clears throat> uh, governing rural property relations, mapping property, transfer, converting um, rural property into urban property, uh, managing the mutation of ownership. Um, so a whole host of processes alongside other work that the office does based, uh, in providing kind of documentation for villages. Um, and that was a really kind of insightful year, really, about uh, where I really learned about how kind of opacity and uncertainty within state records um, is quite keenly mobilized by real estate actors as well as state to try and impress territorial claims. Um, So sort of counter to um, the kinds of calculative logics that we see often in literature and in urban politics in South Asia, influenced a little bit by by James Scott's work. I... um, more, more akin with Ananya Roy's work on mapping, I saw, I, I, I examined the ways that state bureaucrat, bureaucrats would unmap and remap um, property boundaries, would exploit uh, disjunctures between different accounts on property, um, uh, would mobilise opacity and uncertainty within the cadastral maps in order to uh, impress property claims and, and um, enshrine um, property claims into the record. Um, yeah, and then uh, yeah, and then the kind of last couple of chapters of the book are more return to questions of labour, which are far more driven by again this kind of long form engagement with trade unions um, in in Gogaon. 
Yeah, just sort of two follow-up questions on that that I was kind of curious, uh, even when reading the book, is that through the book, you're able to access very different sets of people who are in, you know, who have a power relation with each other. And these relations could be fairly conflictual. So you're spending time with uh, with uh, people living in the tenement blocks, but also the landlords. You're spending time with um, the government officials working uh, on land, making land bureaucracy, but also those who are trying to evade it. So I was wondering how you manage to access and make relations with groups that are fairly fairly conflictually related with each other and also you you are able to spend a lot of time not just in the work I mean not just through work but also in the tenement blocks with female workers and um, because the, the the tenement blocks even sort of the public galleries and courtyards in these blocks can be fairly intimate spaces governed by rules of gender um, I, I, I would like to hear more about how you access these these spaces and make these relations. Yeah, I think so. In the first question, I think um, partly that's virtue of the length of time that I've done this project, such that I, I wasn't doing research with, um, for example, landlords and agrarian bureaucrats at the same time. Um, neither was I doing. I mean, most of my work with uh, workers took place before I then kind of went off and did loads of research with, their la- with landlords. Um, so, but of course there was a process, there's, there's a, there's a, there was a kind of pra- a research practice w- where I had to uh, differentiate those spaces um, and not, um, you know, but be open about my interest in these different aspects of Gilgaon's urbanization uh, without kind of disclosing any particular information about for example, workers to landlords, which would um, which wouldn't be great. But I think there's also, I mean, and I, and I make this point in in chapter five of the book. There is a very um, hierarchical and exploitative relationship between landlords in the tenements and um, and migrant labourers um, who uh, are in a very precarious position and whose mobility through the tenements has to be constantly secured through ever increasing, um, precarity. So the, the, the key aim of the landlord and the tenements is to keep their tenement, um, uh, body moving, to keep workers moving through the tenements on a, on a very quick, um, um, over a very quick period of time in order to re- retain territorial power and um, but also to kind of satisfy the uh, work rhythms of the of the factory um nevertheless <laughs> with that in mind i did live in these tenements and some of the relationships between landlords and workers is a little bit softer than you might think coming from the outside so it isn't like as as is always the case right in in, in, in life, these kind of um, material and structural relationships slightly bleed when you look at them uh, in a kind of more everyday and ethnographic manner. You know, you've, there were landlords who were who were known to be more um, af- um, accommodating of late payments or accommodating with credit, who, you know, put on um, uh festival small festival displays for tenants and, um, you know, some even that kind of employed workers as kind of contract laborers for them um in, in the long run so yeah so so there is a kind of uh, a slightly quieter 
uh, and fuzzier relationship that perhaps I, I couldn't really capture in the book. Um, I kind of tried to gesture towards it, but I couldn't. But that, but that fuzzier relationship sort of made it perhaps slightly easier for, for me to move between those two spaces in, in some cases. I think a lot of the time the landlords thought my interest in workers was really from a kind of social uh, kind of social work perspective. Um, uh, you know, I was interested in questions of like poverty and um, impoverishment um, and also questions of work in the factory, which the landlords sort of quite cleanly d- dislocated themselves from. So, um, And then on your second point around the kind of access, particularly to these domestic uh, and intimate spaces, a lot of that, those relationships were brokered through um, Nairi Shakti Munch, this uh, women's um, small independent kind of women's women's rights organization that also kind of acted to support the development of small trade unions for women workers in Gulgaon. So there was a kind of institutional relationship. And through that, I kind of built over across a period of a long time um, relationships with um with workers where I was able to kind of speak to them about their kind of, the kind of long durée of their lives. I tried to prioritise um, life history account kind of interviews. Um, some of those earlier interviews I did alongside a kind of, um, a kind of friend as well, like a female friend. Um, in fact, in one kind of interesting encounter, which I can't remember if I write about in the book, um, I was speaking with a worker who was... Um, who was originally from West Bengal, and I don't speak Bengali. Uh, and so I brought a friend who did speak Bengali. And um, but for some reason, we, I hadn't communicated that she could speak Bengali. So the interview was this kind of kind of interview. I kind of spent the afternoon of a Sunday with her, like four or five hours, which and it was really stilted. And the kind of um, conversation was very much like commanded by me. And, I, you know, that's a very that was very much um, characteristic of my engagements with many um, female workers in the tenements is that, you know, I'm, I have a huge amount of power in this relationship and um, I had to be quite aware of that and kind of take that into consideration when, when I was analysing the kinds of information I got. But suddenly in that, in that particular interview uh, or kind of afternoon, um, the, the person we were interviewing kind of became aware that my friend could speak Bengali. And suddenly this kind of conversation, which was really dry and boring, like took a completely different turn. And we spoke, we ended up chatting for hours about like um, favorite television shows. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily like research, um, you know, instrumentally valuable, but it was a kind of valuable encounter for demonstrating the kind of limits and partialities of my relationships in the tenements. Yeah, thank you. Because I felt that even um, with some fieldwork that I've done in Gurgaon, this idea of suspicion in so many of these spaces, if you're inquiring about, you know, land or inquiring about industrial work or even the lives of people in tenement blocks, I just felt like suspicion is such a, it was always with me in in fieldwork. And um, yeah, so yeah, yeah, your answer helps understand how you, um, yeah, how you manage that. Um, so maybe to go back to the the, the, the main uh, arc of the book, uh, you have this very productive uh, analytical frame of the frontier, which I think uh, was amazing because it captures this dualism. Because when we first think of frontiers, we think of this kind of fixed material, you know, hard thing. But then it's also imbued with all this imagination uh, and it's 
uh, and it's constantly changing. Um, and there are multiple frontiers and each imagined differently by a different set of people. Uh, and then there's a sort of, there's the dominant imagination of what Gurgaon is. And then there's the subaltern understanding of, um, of, of its people. Um, so maybe if I could hear a bit more about this idea of the frontier and frontier making and frontier shifting and frontier unmaking that runs throughout the book, which is this kind of finite but infinite, fixed and you know unfixed material, but also imagined, imagined um, um, place making um, that the book is about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you know, obviously, I put it in the title, so I I feel it has some kind of central role in explaining the book. So I. Um, yeah, but but you're right. It does. It comes across in different iterations across the across the book, um, and I think what's useful about frontiers for me is that they can speak to those different iterations, right? So there's one sense in which the frontier um, that I try and talk about has been materially produced and really is epiphenomenal of the uneven development of southern Punjab slash Haryana in the 20th century. So the first chapter of the book is about how and um, the kind of insertion of Punjab um, under colonial rule into global capitalist sort of commodity markets um, led to the devastation of this southern district, Gorgaon, which was really seen as this kind of feeder district into the northern um, districts, which were the kind of big agricultural exporting districts, um, and which the colonial officers really struggled to settle, in, in, to use the kind of colonial term, you know, they really struggled to, to enforce private property relations and kind of entrepreneurial agricultural behaviour. And so that story of, of uneven development where you, where you um, see this kind of relatively upward lifting development of northern Punjab and the devastation of what would become Gurgaon is a really is really important for laying the material groundwork for the revalorization of Gurgaon in the 20th century um and that revalorization is real it has this kind of material background back, backbone to it but is also discursive in the sense that it relies upon a certain understanding of Gurgaon from the from the 1970s as this backward um uh backward uh, former in pastoral region that has no real history um has no has really got nothing going for it and it's very urgently uh needs uh redressal through in this case kind of capitalist intervention so here we see like the production of a discursive and an imaginative um uh, frontier a frontier of if you like the classic colonial frontier of civilization being placed between Delhi and Gurgaon, which then justified um, uh, the real estate developers and the states moving into Gurgaon in the 80s and recapitalizing land. And there's this fantastic passage, which I include in the introduction of the book from um, the biography of K.P. Singh, who was the the chief executive of Delhi Land and Finance, the, the developer that was is largely attributed for developing the, the kind of early um, neighbourhoods in Gurgaon and actually is kind of synonymous, if you, if you like, DLF is like synonymous with the Gurgaon model, where he kind of depicts Gurgaon as this thrillingly empty space with no history, this kind of bucolic landscape of austere nothingness that requires... Um, 
the markets to transform into something resembling the modern. Um, and, you know, I think that's a re- that, that um, iteration of the frontier you see throughout Gauguin's history. So the early master plans um, and planning documents on Gauguin justified deregulation of planning regula- um, planning restrictions by claiming that Gauguin was going to be subject to urbanization and is subject to these kind of unruly, unstable forms of um, um, housing development and um, kind of informal markets and thus required mar- kind of corporate market intervention, which the planning documents were going to enable. Uh, even the very latest uh, master plans that you find in Gauguin justify opening up vast tracts of forest and mountainous areas in Gauguin. They justify its urbanization through this threat of urbanization. Um, and so this too, here too, you see the frontier being put at work, you know, where certain territories, certain practices of land are placed within a certain temporality, which is out of step with modernity and requires intervention from the state, or in, or in this case, intervention by the markets on, by which they use the idiom urbanization. But there is also another kind of um, iteration of the frontier, which I then find quite analytically useful, which is that one developed, um, you know, by um, scholars such as Jason Moore, but also his, kind of historical scholars such as Vinay Gidwani, um, uh, feminist geographers, um, to um, which attempts to show that frontiers are always, of course, ideologically produced, but they also have to be materially produced. You know, if we claim that uh, in order for, for, for us to capture this rural bucolic organ, we have to make it empty, we have to make these histories annulled, we have to mobilise um, frontier actors to transform space there's a huge amount of work that has to take place at the frontier um, and that and the kind of that that analytical um uh, foregrounding of of frontier work helps to explain the compromises and alliances that then i i feel like sort of central to the story of of Gorgown. um so yeah i think i mean if uh, i guess the final kind of iteration is these kind of speculative the speculative work that the frontier does too. So uh, a chapter of the book, I think chapter three, details the ways that the planning apparatus of the state tried to encourage and elicit um, entrepreneurial and speculative behaviour among, um, you know, both kind of corporate real estate developers, but also agrarian landowners. Um, uh, And they do so by positioning very similarly to, you know, KP Singh back in the 1980s, all forms of land use, all forms of um, land value in Gauguin as out, as only sensible through the rubric of, of real estate and real estate development. So they, they kind of tell a story to agrarian landowners in particular of certain futures of agrarian decline and, a cert- and they prospect a future, a future temporality which is secured through real estate value so there's only one path which real estate uh, which agrarian land can can move toward and that's through its conversion into real estate and that's in part what drives uh, that kind of frontier work is what drives you know a, a small or medium-sized farmer to um, give up his kind of agricultural interests and and look to transform 
his land for real estate purposes. Um, and it's also, you know, I try and sort of demonstrate again there how that process is is, is largely um, a speculative one um, that doesn't necessarily align with um, the kind of calculative or formal logics of the state. What we see on the f- these kind of in these frontier practices is agrarian landowners mobilizing caste power, mobilizing the kind of aesthetic and normative registers of uh, the of the urban in order to uh, substantiate property claims, often in lieu of actual uh, title documents or planning permissions um, or um, and, and so forth. So, you know, the, the, there's a kind of... Um, and here I draw on uh, Laura Bear's work it on on speculation where she where she describes how speculation invites us to suspend calculative norms and impress quite other forms of logics and in this case caste logics aesthetic logics um, um kind of real estate based logics in order to secure kind of territory and secure power yeah, just picking off that, I'm uh, on the point of like em- what you called annulment of history and emptying out of history, and this has to be this kind of blank tabula rasa. Uh, I'm curious how uh, present, past, and future then come to relate with one another. So the past has to be emptied out, and then there's this kind of accelerated city making and rush of capital and people, and then this sense of the not yet and the sense of that it is yet to come, and this and the anticipatory modes of being and living and waithood. Um, and how that then fires speculative practices, not just in land and city making, but also people's, you know, personal ambitions um, and uh, personal life making. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm curious then about this, uh, how the past is imagined, how the future is waited for, and the sense of rush in the present, um, and this, you know, yeah. Which one feels uh, immediately on one's skin when one is in Gurgaon, these these three time frames um, sitting quite awkwardly um, uh, in relation to one another. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, like, the, there's not, a, um, although there's often, uh, it's often presented as a, a kind of unilinear movement from um, a kind of antiquated past to a kind of um, a modern uh, um, future substantiated by this kind of these kind of the physical fabric of Gauguin. Um What's so, I guess, uncanny and and interesting about, about Gauguin is the articulation of, for example, agrarian pasts, um, particularly the agrarian pasts of um, the dominant agrarian castes of Jats and Yadavs, um, in particular. Um, Alongside this kind of, as you as you describe it, this kind of rushed, um, future oriented, um, develop uh, kind of real set of real estate values, which are kind of pushing um, um, uh, agrarian landowners to engage in certain kinds of um, practice on their lands, um, and 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 you and those temporalities shape kind of spatialities in the city. So you see. You know why is it then that you know if if these if these actors are no longer farmers or kisans and why do they hold on to their um, village homesteads? Why do we still have urban villages? And part of that's because of the kind of cultural um, cultural values uh, which are 
re-mobilized as political and economic values, which, which that, which though, which holding on to that identity as a Kisan um, is is useful for. What's interesting then is how, however, is how those real estate values or the kind of uneven development of of real estate value in in Gulgaon ends up interrupting and fracturing some of those um, um, agrarian communities. So you, suddenly you see, if you, if you spend time in the villages in Gulgaon, the, there's a subset of villages who have done very, very well from Gulgaon's urbanization and have made, have been, been able to um, kind of convert themselves into kind of mini developers or land aggregators and make a life of them set for themselves outside the village, if you like. These are kind of the, often held up in, in village chat as kind of the model villages to which all, all agrarian landowners aspire toward. But there are lots of um, uh, people living in villages who are from uh, those those same communities who are who are not experiencing that sort of transformative um, that transformative story. And so there's a kind of build up of resentment, and some would now argue there's uh, a return to a, a, an, uh, to the embrace of an identity of the Kassan rather than as the real estate developer or embracing a closer embrace of rural identities, um, which was kind of happening throughout my research. Although, um, um, you know, if I did my research now, I probably would be able to um, look at it in more detail. Yeah, just on that, my uh, my next question was about this category of people who have um, who who've had very intense social mobility um, through the urbanization of Gurgaon. Um, so I'm curious then because you know the book speaks uh, very powerfully about um, uh, about the idea of conflict and capture, and then how it's it's not so straightforward, and also this kind of gets more blurred with uh, with what you call alliances and compromises. But I'm also curious about these more happy happy collusions that have happened, where people's own personal life projects have come to be threaded um, through this project of city making, and there has been. Uh, intense social mobility for not just certain families and caste groups, but also entire villages, like you mentioned. And I'm curious about what work that does to sustain these alliances and compromises um, and how they then fit into this, the, the patchwork landscape of the city in the making. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, on one hand, I think um, there, are, there are a lot of um, uh, agrarian um families and formerly agrarian families and members of the agrarian community have done very well out of um, um, their remediation as kind of real estate actors and indeed as um, industrial actors. So one of the first kind of movements of agrarian uh, landowners into real estate was into industrial real estate. They were in the in the kind of uh, late 90s, early 2000s, lots of uh, landowners in Gulgaon were buying up industrial plots in the in the states industrial estates which they then lease out at quite high values to what was then manufacturing industry but now has become more um kind of bpos and um service sector um so there are there are you know you will find people that have done very well uh, and when i spent time in the bureaucrat in in the patuari office um that's certainly a place where you'll find the kind of more the kind of upper echelons of the um what i think of as these kind of elite rentiers these agrarian actors who've been able to <clears throat> mobilize uh probably inherited uh, land holdings 
the kind of social capital that that comes from uh, agrarian um, community to to kind of transform themselves quite cleanly, if you like. Um, but what I want, what I try to kind of emphasize across the book really is how these alliances are quite unstable and are often um, substantiated far more on the um, on the kind of speculative aesthetics of um, agrarian transformation rather than its material uh, realization um, and th that's partly how I read um, the kind of more the kind of demise of the Gauguin model so Gauguin was really pumped as this as this extraordinary story of um, the developmental um, purpose of, of real estate development across the 2000s, this kind of potential for real estate uh, development to transform an entire society. By, the, by around 2000 and maybe 14, 15, when the, um, just after the financial crash and the kind of handing over of power from the Congress uh, in Haryana and at the central level to the BJP, we Gauguin begins to uh, experience, you know, a, a massive uh, slide in real estate value. The, the, the whole real estate industries kind of get suspended um, off the back of um, a, a kind of capital flight that Lorena Searle has written about in her work um, of international investors out of out of India and out of certain projects, particularly in Gauguin. Um, and you get this kind of series of land scandals which embroil political actors. So um, there was a, f a number of scandals involving the state, the state acquiring land purpose, um, sort of compuls on compulsory purchase orders or eminent domain, and then handing it over to private developers. So the story kind of loses Gauguin model, kind of loses its shine in the in the twenty fifteens, and. Um, alongside the kind of slow econ economic stagnation, this this uh, shiny, um, alluring uh, story about you can change yourself if you transform yourself into a real estate actor becomes less compelling. And so, some in the book, I kind of talk about some scholars and writers who have who've discussed how this is fed into an emergent Hindutva agenda uh, and kind of cultural politics. Uh, in Gauguin. That wasn't kind of a central feature of my book, but it's, I think, certainly something which I began to see towards while I was writing up my book, really. Um, and But also, you, you know, the, the more recent strikes in Punjab, you could partly um, or you could partly understand as a response to the failures of things like uh, projects like the Gauguin model to actually deliver on these promises for um, real estate um, sort of transform real estate based transformation. So, what I think is important there is to understand that these alliances and compromises that I discuss are entirely unstable. Um, that they not only cede power and certain degrees of control to these institutions and actors to, you know, subvert development projects to make you know uh, maintain large areas of monopoly rents within very high value. Uh, otherwise really high value real estate value land. Um, but they have the potential to break down and to forge other forms um, of alliance. And so that's kind of what I try and trace in the conclusion of, of, of the book. Yeah, thank you. Um, another thing that's quite uh, powerful in the book is that for the first half and more, uh, we are seeing all these contests that are being played on um, about making making a claim to the city and getting a sort of, you know, a share of the city, which are all being played on the material sort of like reality of the ground. It's really 
the material land. And then towards the end, we meet this footloose labor that is central to city making and who are negotiating belonging and urban citizenship, but but with without any access to land except for through this very exploitative rentier economy. Um, so also just their placement uh, at the end of the book um, just, I think, brings it together so powerfully. But maybe if we could hear more about their contests uh, around urban belonging and citizenship, um, um, which... and. And their presence in the city, which is tied through the question of labor and not land. Um, yeah. And how that how that um, fits into this urban city making. Yeah. So I think this goes back to my original intentions of the project, which is try to understand how the geographies of industrialization and labor were knitted into in seeming incongruity, these geographies of high value land and real estate. And so you're right, the first half of the book kind of follows this quite, in a way, traditional story about how the entrance of global real estate capital has brought forward all these struggles over the meaning and value of land. And I try to point to the ways that the agrarian world kind of leads these transformations and kind of contorts them and and and, and, and subverts. In the second half of or the second couple of chapters of the book, what I'm interested in then is how all this uh, the the or how all this kind of politics of land and and, and urban transformation is shaping labour politics, uh, which takes me back to the to the research I was doing right at the beginning of my project, um, where you know my initial set of questions when I was in, spending time with um, uh, uh, industrial workers in the tenements and trade unions was you know well you know I, I get that you're you're, you're going on strike at the factory or you're locking your boss in the in his office and beating him up with your shoes but you know what about your claims to housing or like what about your claims to public access to public space or services and they would kind of look at me like uh, like you know you, you don't get it like uh um i don't care about this city you know you know what i mean like um and you know that's partly because i came to a ground with a certain training in urban studies which taught me to foreground a very particular itinerary of urban politics centered around territorial claims um, and claims to like the nominal city what we think about as kind of um, housing infrastructure um, and so on and by following these workers uh, struggles so in the chapter six of the book I followed kind of two um, quite long uh, long uh, drawn out uh, industrial struggles led by women workers at two auto parts plants single gown and also a domestic workers kind of kind of struggles to unionize in gown and i try to re- rethink these struggles not solely as um kind of classic industrial struggles but also struggles that are born out and of and from the city and these are how might we think about a subaltern urbanism not from the kind of rather slightly more masculinist um, spaces that we tend to study in urban studies and territorialized spaces, but from um, the kind of gendered spaces of the home, of the tenement, of um, of women's experiences in labor migration and mobility, and the different kinds of discourses that discipline and shape uh, women's labor in particular. So respectability becomes a particularly important um, tool when you study uh, women's politics in in disciplining uh, certain kinds of labour. 
Um, so what I, and what I found in my research, what I try and detail in chapter six, is the emergence of this kind of cosmo, sort of cosmopolitanism that isn't bound to the particular particular itineraries of housing or urban space uh, in Gulgaon, but is kind of wedded together through long histories of migration across tenement rooms uh, in different cities in North India and set within a knowledge um, held by many, understood by many of these these workers that their lives would continue to be shaped by exploitative conditions of wage labour and household patriarchy. So, you know, that's the kinds of um, parameters I wanted to try and understand urban politics and a a kind of normally subaltern urbanism from. Um, And that... It's the parameters I try to understand the terms of these of these series of, of workers' struggles. Um, I guess the broader claim in doing so is to try to um, append slightly the masculine and territorialized nature of sub- subaltern urban literature um, and think about um, a certain kind of mobilize an understanding of subaltern com- cosmopolitanism as developed, you know, by Vinay Gidwani and others. Um, how might we think about urban struggles not tied to the here and now of Gauguin, um, Gauguin's formal politics, but tied together between a journey from West Bengal to Bihar to Delhi to then Gauguin? Um, and how do we? What happens when we take those stories into account? Yeah, thanks. That was a great answer. Uh, But also, thanks for all your answers. It was just really wonderful hearing from you more about the book. Um, um, But before we let you go, I'd love to hear more about what you're what you're up to now. What is the next uh, the next project? And uh, if you're if you're doing something entirely different or extending this further? Yeah, so I'm kind of working on a slight extension in a way. It's not um, so tied to telling a story about. Uh, kind of global urbanization from Gauguin. Um, so I'm currently working on a study of um, sort of property technology programs that are being unrolled across uh, India currently uh, by the central government, but with particular uh, fervor in Haryana and some other handful of other states. Uh, and that's kind of drawn from my time spent in the Patwari office, you know, working with bureaucrats who were involved in you know remapping plots reassigning tenures reclassifying property titles um where digital technologies were increasingly playing uh, an important role in their in the kind of if you like the social practice of producing property social material practice of producing property um so similarly you know these new digital property technologies are heralded as a cure for, as you can imagine, every single social ill that policymakers and development institutions can imagine. So digital technologies are going to remedy gender inequality, uh, poverty, um, you know, educate, poor education and everything. Um, What I'm interested in is how bureaucrats and engineers assemble and put together uh, complex property regimes into digital data categories. Um, so, and that's and so I'm embarking on a long form kind of ethnographic study of bureaucrats and engineers who work who are working under a series of these digital property schemes uh, to look at how they work with state records, how they work with land's materiality to shape it into uh, a data category, but also the kinds of politics that emerge from the datification of property. 
so it's slightly different but you know not it's kind of drawn out of my experiences in Gogam. Yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And uh, we'd love to read uh, this stuff as it starts coming out. Um, yeah, um, but thanks again for taking our time to speak to us about uh, about your very wonderful book, Subaltern Frontiers, Agrarian City Making in Gurgaon. Um, I'm sure our viewers, uh, I mean, got a really good sense of where the book's going. And this is going to speak to a wide variety of scholars ranging from urban geography, ethnography, um, uh, subaltern politics. Um, so thanks again for writing this book and for speaking to us about it. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I've really, I've really enjoyed it.